You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. We are gathered here as advisors, as scientists. The kind of place we expect a ghost to like to wander around. Hey, we all know that we're going down, baby. I'll help you. I'm something of a witch. Welcome to Mission Spooky. I'm your fantastic host, JC. With me today, kind of as per usual, the queen of everything herself, Kiki. And our local cryptid enthusiast, Cord. And then we've got someone else with us. Yes. He snuck in here. We got Kevin today. That's me. That's yes. And what's really cool is that Kevin listened to our very first episode, which was on the Black Horse Tavern. And he worked there and wanted to share his experience, which is awesome because we're coming up on that episode 100. And it's kind of nice to go back and revisit that for a moment. So welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for contacting me, too. That was amazing. It was nice to hear that someone had experiences at the Black Horse Tavern. Yeah, that would be... um... Maybe so much for you. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, it, it started, I'm not going to say it. Uh, there was one incident that, like I was telling JC earlier, when he had made a profound statement, one of your earlier podcasts, when he was on Constitution Drive, he felt like his shield was challenged. There was something that happened at the Black Horse that destroyed my shield. And it took me about a week or so to come to grips with it. But then I found a way to actually deal with it. So our listeners know that we're also going to be discussing another place that you live very close to Mm -hmm. also involves the mafia in the same way that Blackwell's Tavern did, obviously, since Damiano was murdered there. Refresh your course for anybody. Just go back and listen to the first one. If not, uh, yeah, that definitely has the mafia in it. Yeah. So if you want to tell us about your experiences at the Black Horse first, that'd be awesome. So I started working there in the spring of 96 and I was working for, I won't drop any last names, but uh, Mark and Terry were their first names and they were a wonderful couple. And Mark was a great boss to work for. And I learned a lot from him uh, when it comes to like details of like running a restaurant and like a bar operation. It was the, the details that actually gave like a baseline that I knew something was weird. So like, for example, the one thing I'd noticed when I was bartending, you get the tips and you stick them in the glass jar. And I always made it a habit. I don't know why, but I always put the president's face out. So I would either see Andrew Jackson or Franklin or whoever, you know, just looking at me through the glass. And as you're running around throughout the course of the night, I would go by the register and I'd see my tip jar. And every so often, one of the bills would be like turned around. So I was seeing like the reverse side. And I just chalked it off to me being busy and not really paying attention. Just maybe shoved the cash in there and kept on going. So that happened a couple of times. But I didn't really think anything of it. Mark was a stickler for the details when it came to customer presentation. So like, for example, all the liquor bottles in the bar had to have their labels facing out. So you could see all of your choices. And he even specified that the chrome pour handles, the nozzles, would be facing towards the back. And there was two reasons for that. The first one was that people are smoking in a bar. And eventually that smoke is going to make its way through the chrome pour. So do you really want to pour a really good glass of whiskey or scotch and not have that smoky Tennessee taste to it, but have the smoky dead Marlboro taste to it? No, you don't want that. So everything with the, the nozzles were always pointed towards the back. And also when you're pouring, with the bottle, 
the label is always up. The customer could always see it. So every so often, you'd see a bottle that was kind of turned sideways. And the only thing that struck me as odd about it was it might have been like a liqueur that we really didn't use too much. So I know I didn't make anything with it recently, but sure enough, the bottle might be just a little bit angled, but sideways. So those were the little things that I just chalked off to you know, being busy, maybe not paying attention. Maybe somebody else moved it. Who knows? In case anybody's surprised by the whole smoking in bars, Pennsylvania did not stop that until 2008. So yeah, so this is 1996. Yeah, this is 96. This is still a thing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we had, um, and as far as I know, I don't think they've remodeled it too much. There's two bars in the Black Horse. There was the main bar, which had the dance floor and had the stage for the live bands that we would have on Saturday nights. And there were tables in between the dance floor and the band area. And that bar ran about maybe 30, maybe even close to 40 feet long. So it was a pretty long bar. And then we also had in the center, there was a center room that was called like the pub area. That was a much more cozier, intimate. You maybe got 12, 14 people in their tops in that little middle room. So on Friday nights, I would close down the big bar. If I only had like eight or nine customers, I would tell everybody, let's just go over to the pub. So I'd close up the big bar and transfer all the checks and bring everybody over to the pub, which was a lot cozier. And I could sit on a bar stool and talk to all of my customers at once rather than running 40 feet in either direction, people being spaced out. While I'm doing that and everybody's making their way over with their cocktails and they're sitting down in the pub and I already have the lights on over there. And I'm getting ready to bring their checks over. As I'm walking across the floor and I'm coming into the pub area, I hear this thudding noise behind me. And I didn't think nothing of it because it sounded like a, like a heavy car door being closed in the parking lot. And that's what I thought it was. It was a car door. And I thought, okay, somebody's coming in. I'll see them in a minute because it doesn't take that long to walk inside. And I'd noticed after about 15 minutes, nobody came inside. Well, none of my customers had left either. I kind of thought it was odd, so I went back to the main bar area, and right next to the bar area, there's a like a doorway, an archway. You walk into that to the side dining room. So I walked into the side dining room, and I looked out the windows, which are floor-to-ceiling height, and looked out at the parking lot. I didn't see anything. I looked around. Didn't see anything out of place, so I go to turn and leave. And as I go to turn and leave and get to walk back out of there, I stopped because something out of my eye caught my attention, and I turned around and I looked. And I'm looking at this table in the corner, and I'm like, there's something wrong with this table. And then I realized what it was. The waitresses at night would take all of the unused plates, silverware, put those away for use the next day. Then they would take all the chairs and put them up on the table so they could vacuum underneath, and they vacuumed it every night. And I looked at this table for four, and I realized there's three chairs sitting on the table, and one chair is laying on the ground. And I remember thinking at that point, like, how the hell did that fall off the table? But I got customers to wait on. So I just grabbed the chair by the leg, hoisted it up one armed and put it on the table, turned the lights out and went back to the pub. And maybe I should have paid attention to that incident a little bit more because I think maybe that kind of set the stage that something was trying to get my attention. And it was on a Saturday night. We had a live band and I had parked out in the parking lot and Mark had come out to me. And he said, look, he said, we're probably going to get a huge crowd tonight. He said, with the band that's playing, he said, can you move your car? He said, just go park it out back. And we had like a delivery area. So I went out and moved my car real quick. And I left my gym bag in there. The reason I brought a gym bag was because I would stay there in the guest rooms like overnight. Because when you work all day at your day job from 8 to 5, and then you get down to the restaurant at 530, and you work from 530 at night till 2 o'clock in the morning, 
by the time rolls around, you are dead tired. At that point, I would just go upstairs and just fall over and just crash and just sleep instead of driving home at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. So I forgot my gym bag. So I moved my car, go back in, work till about 2, 2.15, help the normal bartender because we had a huge crowd that night. And after everybody had closed, everybody had left, band was done, we were closing up. I said to her, I said, I'm going to go get my gym bag. She said, okay. So I go through the kitchen. And when you go through the kitchen, there's a back staircase that leads down to delivery door number two. And I'll specify it as number two for a reason. Delivery door number one is in a separate room, and that comes into play later. So delivery door two is the one I went out and got my gym bag. And I came back in, did the deadbolt, locked everything up, and I start heading up the back staircase back up to the kitchen. And you have to picture the staircase. It's not like a normal flight of stairs like you would see in a house. It's about maybe one and a half, maybe even double the size of that. It's a long flight of stairs. Because remember, the Black Horse is built on a hill that slopes down to the Delaware River. So I'm starting to walk up the stairs, and I hear this like rattling sound coming from the kitchen. I thought it was Mark, maybe Terry. His sister Yvonne used to work there. His sister Kathy used to work there with him. So as I'm going up the stairs, I call out Mark's name. Nobody responds. I say, Yvonne, Kathy, nobody's responding to me. I hear this rattling sound, and then it stops. I'm getting close to the top of the stairs, and I said, guys, are you sure you're okay? Because there's, I was going to say, a lot of equipment back here that you could get hurt with. I came around the corner, and as I came around the corner, the metal rack that is right there next to the ovens, a colander, it didn't fall. It got slapped off the shelf hard enough that it nailed itself off the prep table and bounced back towards the ovens. And I stood there for maybe a second or two, just looking around the kitchen, and nobody's in the kitchen but me. And I remember saying, holy shit, and threw my gym bag off my shoulder, and I ran around the prep area came out to the double doors. I hit them so hard. I smashed them back against a stone wall. The rest of the staff is sitting in the pub area. I come flying into the pub area. I literally crash into the bar stool and into the bar. I can't breathe. I can't speak. I can't talk. And I am shaking uncontrollably like a leaf. I can't even form sounds. I can't even put coherent words together. And dimly, I remember hearing Yvonne Mark's sister saying, Mark, you might have to call the paramedics. There's something wrong with him because I, I couldn't breathe mm. until finally I'd gotten myself under control. And Yvonne looked at me and she like actually held her hands right in my face. And she's like, what's wrong? At all, I could just point back to the kitchen and form three words. I said, colander, empty, kitchen. That's all I could say. And then I went back and just sat at the bar and like huddled like I was freezing cold, shivering. And Mark said, well, I'll go back and check it out. I sat there for a couple of minutes and he came back and all he looked at me and said was, you dropped your gym bag on the floor. But I took one look at Mark's face and he wasn't his normal jovial self. He kind of had like a somber look on his face as if he knew that didn't just fall on the floor. Something was trying to get my attention and I knew who it was. So I didn't stay there that night. Matter of fact, I didn't stay there the next weekend. Dude. I don't think anybody would stay there that night. Fuck that. <laughs> I wouldn't have. No, 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 no. It literally took me uh, about a week to 
come down off of that. I mean, I would fall asleep at night trying to get sleep for work. And I was telling Kiki the other night, as I'm talking to you guys now, I, I can still in my mind's eye, I can see that colander just off the shelf, hitting the prep area table and bouncing back toward I, I can still hear it and see it to this day. And we're, what, 27 years later? That shit stays with you. And that's when my shield got destroyed. I was always a believer. And I always think people fall into three categories. You have the disbelievers who, I think once JC, you yourself said in an in a episode that, that people could be confronted with all the evidence in the world and they will still stick their head in the sand and deny that there's any existence of this. Yeah. And you have people that were like me who respectfully believe, but up until then, never had an experience. And then you have a third group of people, and we're going to call them the convinced. Well, that colander coming off that rack firmly moved me from respectful believer to the convinced. <laughs> no doubt in my mind. And I knew who it was. And somebody was trying to get my attention. And I got to say, he did a bang-up job in doing so. Cost me about a week's <laughs> worth of sleep. So I thought, okay, you know what? You want attention? I'm going to give it to you. So I went to the Eastern Library and spent hours and hours researching microfilm of the Easton Express until I found what I was looking for. And I had the articles all printed out and got a big picture frame. And I brought them down to the Black Horse. I walk in, Mark says, hey, Kev, what's up? I said, are the hammer and nails in the office? He said, yeah. So I go back in the office, grab the hammer and nails. And he goes, what are you doing? I pounded a nail into the wall, hung up the big picture frame, and I put a nail right in the bottom to fasten it right there. And I said, there we go. And Mark's like, oh, you found an article on the shooting. I'm like, yep, there it is. So I gave him his recognition. And then a funny thing happened after that. People would stop in, and every so often somebody would say, well, this place has been around since the 1700s. You got a ghost here? And I would say, yeah, actually we do. And they would say, really? And I'm like, well, yeah, if you want to see him, he's out there in the hallway. And you've never seen <laughs> whip around so quick, staring at the hallway. They're like, there's nobody there. I said, go read the wall. And they'd go read the article. And they're like, oh, my God, that happened here? A mob hit took place here? I'm like, yeah, it did. I said, where you're standing is probably where the blood splattered. You've never seen people jump back so fast. <laughs> but that same couple would come back to the bar, have two more drinks. And then that same couple would show up the next weekend. But they would bring three of their friends, who then in turn turned around and brought three of their friends, and business started to grow. So it was kind of like a win-win. Okay? We started making a ton more money, and Johnny Saviero got his recognition. He wanted to be recognized, so I gave it to him. After that incident with the colander, things went back to the mm, every other month, you know, the dollar bill turned around, maybe a bottle turned on the bar. It went back to the the little levels that it was at before and just every so often when i was closing the pub and some people would say you know oh i had this feeling i was being watched i had that feeling too but not in a i'm being glared at sense not in a i'm being stared at sense not in a malevolent sense i just knew when i was stocking up that all of a sudden like it just seemed like the air changed and i knew i wasn't by myself and i would start to talk to him just like i'm talking to you guys now I'd be wiping down the bar and stocking up, and I'd say, I know you're there. I said, you do what you do, and I'm going to do what I do. If you want to stand there and watch me stock up the beer cooler, you can do that. 
I got to go down the basement. If you want to follow me, you can do that too. Just keep the bullshit to a minimum and we'll be okay. You know, we can coexist in this space. And that's how I would talk to him. Wait, you would, you would talk to a spirit of a person like, like they're a person and not like their entertainment value for you. What? Yeah. I talked to him like he was a person, like he was standing there. That's what you should do. <laughs> so that is the black horse. And like I said, I, I still could just this, this day see that colander being literally slapped off that shelf. It's crazy how that stuff sticks with you. It's been what? Almost 20 years. Almost 30. Almost yeah. 30 years. Uh, keep forgetting the nineties are like, not 20 years ago Uh, (laughs) (laughs) i'm old you're the youngest one in this call jc don't give me that kiki for reference it i'm talking the 1990s not 18 or 1790s oh my god well done i was telling kiki the other night like i was seeing like other clips and videos that were like done on the black horse and and they they kind of like missed the whole mark some of them actually went into the basement but they didn't go to where the final, how can I say, the final moments of all this took place. They kind of like avoided that. And I'll try to describe this to you as best as I can. When you walk down the basement steps, they curve to your right. And on your left is a room that was used as like a wood storage area and like a coal bunker because at the foot of the stairs directly ahead of you is an old colonial fireplace. And if you make a right and you go through the archway and you make a left, you come to what would have been, and this is why I said before, delivery door number two. You come to a room that has delivery door number one. And this is where, back in his time, all the dry goods would have been stored. And in that room, the lights always flickered. You could change the overhead fluorescent light bulb, and within five minutes, it could have been flickering back again. Bad electricity? I don't know. But light bulbs never worked in that room. And what really sucked is when we blew a fuse, the electrical room, was kind of diagonal. So I had to stand here in this room and literally count to three, take a breath and cross the room to go into the electrical room, hit the fuse, hit the fuse box, and then turn around and come back and come back up the basement stairs. And it was in that room where delivery door number one is. After he had gotten shot, he had tumbled down the stairs. They followed him. And the last guy going down the stairs, the last mobster from New York, ripped the phone out by the cord and tossed it in the bar area so nobody could call for help on the payphone. So the shooting continues as they're going downstairs. He's mortally wounded at this point. He crawls, and he's trying to crawl to delivery door number one, and he doesn't make it. He finally gives up because he's lost so much blood. I mean, anybody would after getting hit with two sawed-off 12s and two thirty-eights. Fair enough. So as he's making his last effort to try to crawl out through delivery door number one, One of the newspaper articles had mentioned this. A witness heard coming from the basement an extremely loud shotgun blast. And then right afterwards, somebody muttered the words, that's it for him. And one of the guys took a sawed-off 12, put it right to his back in that room, point blank, and pulled the trigger. Ouch. Now, I'd like to state for our viewers, uh, sawed-off shotguns are illegal. They are now. But also is murdering people. Thanks for that PSA. Yes. You're welcome. Good job. <laughs> In case anyone didn't know, murder is against the law. Yes, it is. I liked when when we were emailing and talking originally, you had heard this actually on our YouTube channel, which was kind of cool, mm-hmm. is that I think 
two of the articles where you mentioned some very specific details that I was missing from my original investigation. Oh, about the uh, the, the blonde haired chick. Yeah, they were behind a paywall. Mm-hmm. This was the very first podcast episode we were doing. I was like, I'm not paying for that right now. Oh, yeah. No, I don't blame you there. But yeah, back in 96, I did it the old fashioned way. Microfilm and my eyes were wigging out right. at the library. Right. The few small details where I wasn't 100% sure. So I didn't really, you know, go out on a limb and make any kind of assumptions. You went and like you had just filled some of that in actually uh, just now. So that's really cool. And then you guys filled in some things for me too, because the articles that I had found had said that this was all a dispute over a woman and it wasn't because she was Johnny's girlfriend. Apparently what he did was he had lured away very attractive blonde from a Brooklyn prostitution ring and set her up in the black horse. Basically he was a pimp to work for him. So he stole away one of their sources of revenue. Well, you know, the mob doesn't take too kindly to somebody encroaching on their territory. So they did what mobsters do. They sent four guys out from a New York city in a Lincoln town car and sent them to Eastern Pennsylvania to take care of business because they weren't putting up with that because witnesses in the article reported that as they were sitting there, when the door opened up, they said four gentlemen walked in, four of them. And that's when the shooting started. Revolvers and shotguns because the article went on to mention that one of the slugs went through the wall and it landed in the opposite wall of a 12-foot room. Well, that 12-foot room, when I was there, was the pub bar. The slug went right through by the basement door, right through that wall, through the bar wall, and lodged in the opposite wall. Now, people that were there started jumping out the windows, and the blonde got hauled out of there somehow. Uh, But all the girls that were there that night, they all got locked upstairs in a room. Uh, Later on, after the shooting was done, witnesses that heard the commotion came out and looked, and they said they saw a large... And you got to love the way the newspapers were written back in the 20s, delicious terminology. Uh, They said a a large touring machine, a car wasn't a car, it was a machine, was seen speeding up 611 North with Schwartz hanging off the running board, and it had New York license plates on it. Of course, when he got questioned later, he didn't know these four guys, never saw him before, that wasn't him, the usual cover-up. Right. I had noted that he had been brought in for questioning, but they never had enough on him. So mm-hmm. keep... And then my little piece was that we knew that the woman's name was possibly uh, Lillian Taylor and that Frank Budeline had grabbed her and left. That that the three of them, including Johnny, had come there together. Mm-hmm. Frank left him for dead and grabbed her and booked it out of there we only hear of her one other time afterwards where she gets picked up for questioning as well as frank and then she just disappears from the record completely not surprising given the times right and given the events that were involved and what i learned from you guys was i thought it was basically open and shut you know everybody got questioned nobody saw anything nobody knows nothing and the Eastern PD finally said, well, nobody's answering any questions. So, you know, okay, dead investigation. What I learned from you guys was they actually had somebody in the crosshairs as a suspect and came real close. So see, and this is why I love you guys' podcast, because you taught me something I didn't know 30 years ago, is that there was someone almost taken to trial for this gangland hit at the Black Horse. So close. 
Tambor. So close, but uh, other people got to him first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, the king of the night got his ass. <laughs> Once again, what an awesome, like, name. Like, just, I am the king of the night. What a badass. But also, <laughs> murder's not cool, guys. <laughs> I think the guy up here, that Louis Moff, I think he was called the king of the coal region. Well, we're going to get to him in a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I found some stuff out, dude. Oh, man, I love the fact that I, I enjoy mafia-related information, which is why uh, when you said that you were also, like, you enjoyed everything, you had these experiences, you liked that episode, and I was like, hey, this is awesome. And then you're like, hey, have you ever heard about the ghost of Broad Mountain? And I'm like, no, <laughs> actually have not. Uh-huh. And we got talking about that, and then you had said you went up there. I have some good news and some bad news. <laughs> We'll get that. We'll save the bad news for last. I don't know. I don't know. See, the, the jury might still be out. We'll we'll get we'll get through it. Well, we'll have to see. But I'll tell you one thing: you should you should caution your listeners that the the tale they're about to hear is not for the faint of heart. Because like I was telling you the other night, uh, if you guys any of you have ever watched uh, Homicide Hunter with Detective Joe Kenda, he had said when he was a uh, homicide detective in Colorado Springs PD. That he said, you learn very early on in that type of work, he said that human beings are capable of anything. He said, and there are human beings that stop at nothing. And that's one of these cases. And maybe because it maybe because it jagged on me more so than it should have, only because I was thinking when I was married, I had stepdaughters that age. You know, and yeah, maybe maybe that's where it just kind of like hooked me in. Reading the story, I was like, uh, this happened here, four miles away from where I live. Yeah, it's a little rough. So murder, mafia, and sex work. Sounds like a great night. That's what we're about to get into. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. And we are actually coming up on the 98th anniversary of this happening. When this episode airs, it's going to be three weeks from the anniversary. Yeah, it will, yeah. actually. I wouldn't be me if I didn't also say what I'm about to say. Uh, so before we get into it, I just want to reiterate how important it is for people to cite their dang sources when you're podcasting or writing, because I found a couple of discrepancies in what's basically the dominant website concerning this particular story, because there's also a book and this person also has a podcast. And so these things are all together and I was not able to find things as easily. And I'll get into why I really wanted to read some of the articles and know where these or where the information was coming from. The largest source for this is Pennsylvania Oddities. And that website is run by Marlon Bressy. And he also wrote the books. He has two books on Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Oddities. The story part of it, how he compiles everything, fantastic. Okay. But there was something in particular I'll get into in a minute that I was kind of like, I wish that I had the actual source newspaper the article the day the year because this one because of what happens it's kind of all over the place there's an ongoing investigation and it's an unsolved murder to this day so it would be hel- it would have been helpful to know exactly what he was talking about so it's all right yeah i'm not i'm actually throwing anyone under the bus i i still really enjoyed the uh the writing is fantastic so uh but just Give me the stuff I need to find things, please. 
I'm going to explain the entire story, but I'm going to give you guys kind of just the rough breakdown before we get into a very important aspect of this. Okay, so first of all, the charred remains of a young woman are found on Broad Mountain. This is along the road that leads to Hecksherville. I'm not exactly sure how to say that. That's correct. Okay, cool. And this happened on a Palm Sunday in 1925. The total area of this mystery is going to encompass Schuylkill, Columbia, and Northumberland counties. Because people are searching for possible witnesses at multiple locations. These are all going to be roadhouses. And we'll get into that. (laughs) Uh, They're gathering missing persons reports from multiple places. And yes, the mafia involvement in a sex work ring is under the microscope. This is one of the things that I thought was very important. Marlin talks about this area, especially Schuylkill County, becoming something that is, quote, the port of missing girls. It took me hours to find the original source for this. It comes from the Republican and Herald of May 1st, 1925. It's kind of important because this article sets the tone for the whole mystery, like in my opinion, because it also is a mother pleading with the police to find more information about her missing daughter that has nothing to do with this particular case. But it is true that a lot of people were missing. But my thing was... Who's saying they're missing? Because it's a lot of people. She brought up some really good points in this article. She says that her daughter ran off with a man who had a lot of money, really nice clothes, and said that he was from New York City. So it turns out that the quote report of missing girls comes from another newspaper called the Mount Carmel Item. And this is supposedly only a moniker that the state police of Pennsylvania have given this area. It is not a nationwide moniker this is just they're going through a lot of shit right now and the reason they call it this is because they have told the mount carmel item that they have missing 29 girls and they've all been gone in a seven week stretch so those statistics are being provided by the state police i thought that was kind of important for people to know where that came from because that's a lot of people yeah that's like four girls a week for seven weeks basically now here's the thing i can't corroborate that evidence because the National Database for Missing Persons starts in 1937. So I'll take the police's word for it that they were missing this many people. And if we take the information that the mom gave in this article, her daughter was only 15 years old and she's talking to this older guy and then like disappears. She was still in school. You know, that's, that's not good. No bueno. No, very no bueno. Also... Important to note is at this point then, when this body is found, the police are already inundated with letters and requests from parents trying to find their missing girls previous to this happening. It gets worse when she's found because then as the news gets out to other states, now you have other states going, I miss my daughter. It could be her. So what happens is the police wind up with too many leads, which is all... At just as bad, honestly. They're kind of like, holy crap. That news article is the Mount Carmel item, April 13th, 1925, where it explains how busy the police have been because they're getting just bombarded with letters even from outside the state at this point. Now I got that set up for you. I'm going to take you through, well, I'll say the murder, but we'll, we'll talk about exactly what happened historically speaking. April 1925, Mr. and Mrs. Claude Duncan they are, this was interesting to me. They're looking for something. It's constantly called Arbutus. I was like, what? 
is that? It turns out it's a really great tree for making walking sticks out of. So then uh, that made a lot of sense. They're up at Broad Mountain. And first they see a flock of crows that appears to be pecking at something. And then they see a pair of legs sticking out from under some bushes. And it is going to be the charred remains of this girl. There's less than two square inches of clothing on her. She's got a tan stocking, a scrap of olive green dress material, and a half-melted shoe. And they wind up finding a red hat a few feet away from where the body is. Now she's got some rings on her, and this was actually what the police thought was going to help them. She has an old wedding band, but no inscription on it. There was a piece of like a wrapped wire uh, ring, as, as almost as if she took wire and sort of made a ring out of it. And then another one that appeared to have some kind of pearls on it. The autopsy by Deputy Coroner James Roth is going to reveal that uh, she was most likely attacked somewhere else and then brought to the mountain. It was felt by him that she was probably unconscious, but still alive when she was set on fire with kerosene. The ground around her is charred, so they know that the fire happened at this particular location. So it's not just the body. The state police, however, think that she might have been murdered, already dead, at a different location, and then brought to the mountain, and then the fire was used to try to conceal part of the crime. One of the biggest things is who she is. Police thought maybe they could get a really good photograph of her face and then distribute that but it's too badly damaged for, the, for a photograph to show the features. Uh, they wind up taking photographs of the rings instead and hoping that someone recognizes one of the rings because that antique wedding ring was sort of uh, very distinct. They think they have her ID'd several times and then it just doesn't go anywhere. So the first time is uh, the locals, right? They're like, she's going to be Annie Richard Smith. This part really pissed me off, actually. <laughs> Annie's called Humpty Sullivan by the locals that's kind of an asshole thing to do because she's got the mental capacity of a 12 year old so basically they're making fun of someone with a mental disability i thought it was kind of shitty sure is i mean it was the 20s right like <laughs> I, I, know, but... I know i know i know i was like seriously and i i'll be honest when when i first heard humpty sullivan i thought i thought the humpty was a reference to like her being a prostitute Oh my god. Honestly, same. That's where I thought yeah, you were going to go. Right? I, I'm not the only one. Okay. So I was like, oh, Humpty dumped. Oh, that's God, you guys stuck. You suck. It just so happens that it coincides with the state police showing up to the same bar or the same area where they're kind of questioning people in Shimokin and they grab her. And they're like, oh, well, you're still alive. <laughs> Let's bring you in for questioning though, right? I also was about to get really pissed about this, but then learn something really cool it says that she was transferred to a place called the home for feeble-minded at laurelton and i was like you assholes you got her arrested it wasn't even her and then she gets sent to one of those horrible places for people with disabilities i learned that this is actually one of the most forward-thinking facilities in the country at the time for training women with disabilities i say training they were it's, it's a little bit messed up because they were using the idea of eugenics. They're taking those women out of society because they understand that genetically they probably should not reproduce if you don't want to have the same, quote, feeble-mindedness. Someone with disabilities. So I'm like, okay, well, that's 
sucks, but whatever. But they also did have programs that they would teach people how to sew and there was dancing and there were movies and it turned out to be not what I expected. I, I for sure thought this was going to be one of those horrible, awful places where they just stick the lesser of society and come to find out the woman who ran it was um, was actually really forward thinking as far as taking care of those people. So it's like, okay, well, she didn't end up, you know, in, in such a horrible place. Phew, because, you know, I couldn't even stand. I'm like, can I, I can't stand another person. Like, you know, she's probably, she probably died in there. It was, it was, it was traumatic. <laughs> I was having a traumatic moment. Uh. Then we have someone called Lillian Tyler who shows up. Now, Kevin and I have talked about the fact that Lillian Tyler is almost exactly the same as Lillian Taylor from the Black Horse Tavern. And I think you said they're both from Shemokin. Now, what's the chances of that? Yes, right? And <laughs> I mean, really, to change the name, all you have to do is add a letter A. Yeah, I was shocked. I was like, how would they? Wow, okay. So I'm just going to kind of give you the rough rundown of this one because it, it goes all over the place with Lillian. But the basic gist of it is that there was a lot of things that happened. There was even some luggage that was found that wasn't claimed. She's alive. She shows up. And the first time that she's said to be alive, it's not a positive ID from like a family member. It was done with a photograph and a police officer in Detroit that she ran off with this guy. She supposedly married this guy. And then she was like, I, don't, I just want to be left alone. Just leave me alone. I'm never coming back. The second time, though, she is identified by her family. Like she does come back to Pennsylvania. She's completely taken off the table as far as the victim without getting bogged down in that one, because it could literally go on for like two pages of nonsense about how they went back and forth with like, is she alive? Is she dead? Nah. But all of this winds up pointing to a huge ring of human trafficking and possible mafia connections. A decision is made to cremate her, then things get weirder. So the unidentified girl's head is removed and stored in a jar of chemicals in hopes of her being identified one day. Not a bad idea. It was just really super creepy. Forever the optimist. <laughs> they were actually stored right down the street from where I live because the doctor that did it assisted the county coroner. And that was um, Spencer? Dr. Robert Spencer. Yeah, Spencer. Of Ashland. Actually, he's the one who took off her head and hands and Hello. kept them in a jar. Literally a couple blocks down from where I live. Well, you might be happy to know that they, uh, well, at least the head is currently residing in the PA State Police headquarters in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I don't think I want to see it. And I work in Harrisburg. As, as of 1942. <laughs> that's what I heard. That's what I, that's what I got. I don't have, there was something about her being thrown into a potter's field, but I, I could not corroborate that. So I wasn't even, I'm not going to say that's a thing. Now a cast was made of her head as well. And that eventually becomes part of the collection at the Schuylkill Historical Society. Again, the cast made as well as a secondary as a backup to try to identify her, just hoping that someone will see basically a death mask of her and go, oh my God, that's my sister or my wife, or, you know, whatever. This is kind of interesting. Three years after this murder, on September 17, 1927, the Pottsville Republican newspaper calls out the local governments for allowing the perpetrator of the crime to go unpunished. Apparently, there is a young man from Shenandoah who showed up at... Uh, now, this, this, is, this article is interesting because it's kind of like speculation and yet it makes perfect damn sense. They say that this young man, whose body is later discovered on the mountain before her murder, 
that he probably went to the Sunset Inn. They knew he went to a roadhouse and that he complained about conditions. He's murdered for complaining about the conditions at said roadhouse, <laughs> which they believed was the Sunset Inn based on what the other girls who they had interviewed said. I'll state that there'd be a lot less Karens in the world if we kept <laughs> that policy up. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Oh, this kid, this poor kid, because I think he was young. He's only 20 some years old. He was just like, the conditions here are terrible. The women are not being treated correctly. Boom, you did. I mean, you know, that's a good way to solve solve a problem, right? Customer service at its finest. To be fair, it immediately stopped his complaint. It did. (laughs) That it did. Complaint duly noted and registered. (laughs) This is from apparent witnesses who came forward. I, as I said, this is this article is three years after. Okay, so they're not naming any names because they don't want to get anyone in trouble, and you'll you'll know why. But they supposedly used a a slingshot to hit him in the head with a stone and kind of render him like surprised. I suppose would be the best. I'm like, damn, that that had to hurt. And then they took a club and beat the shit out of him with it. And then they took his body up to the mountain and left it there. The cops say this is a suicide. I was kind of like, so he beat his own head in? I I, I was going to say, I've heard of a lot of suicides, but I've never heard of someone using a slingshot on themselves and then deciding <laughs> to beat the crap out of themselves with a club. Um, personally, I'm not going to throw it out, you know. It's not out of the realm of possibilities, but I doubt it. He probably botched the shot and was so embarrassed that he's like, I could die. And then just, you know, started beating his own head in over it. You know? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got my own theory on that. You have to understand the, the, the region up here. Mount Carmel's only like five miles away from me. We have a lot of towns up here, okay? But they're not really heavily populated. And being up here in the coal region, now, predominantly, the, the economy up here at the time was, you know, coal. So in these towns up here, it would not be unheard of, just like anywhere else, for certain officers, not all, to be on the take of certain generous benefactors, shall we mm-hmm. call them. Maybe kind of look the other way and change things in reports. So when you say that, you know, they said, oh, it was a suicide. Hmm. Maybe they were paid to say that in a manner of speaking, maybe not so much with cash, but well, maybe that person that wrote that report found themselves with a nice Florida vacation later on in the year. Maybe they were the recipient of a brand new Buick. That is exactly what they're trying to get at in this article, too. So the next part of that, then, is that the young woman who is murdered most likely saw what happened and was ordered to keep quiet, but that she didn't. And this is coming from other girls supposedly interviewed at the same roadhouse, was that she, quote, told her part of the story to someone. And then she suddenly disappeared after that. She was also not someone who had family looking for her, that she was supposedly taken from one of the local, quote, homes for girls. So maybe she did not have family. And that at this point, this, you know, three years after, I love how they say the locals sarcastically call this a, quote, mystery because they all know who did it, but refer to a powerful entity. We know who that is. Yeah, we do. And everyone is too afraid to talk about it. That's a fantastic article. And yes, (laughs) 
Yes, yes, and yes. And at the end of it, it talks about how uh, voting is happening very soon and that everyone should vote accordingly if they want any of this to change. And I'm like, oh, okay. So you mentioned Louis Moff. The king of the coal region. Yes. So let's talk about him because he... <laughs> so funny i'll say before um, before you do though did you catch by any chance before you do did you happen to catch an article that was published in the i don't think it was in the mount carmel paper but it might have been in the pottsville gazette later on in the year uh, after the girl was found maybe that fall like october and november there was an article that was published that was telling the locals up here to stay off of gordon mountain road and do you know why Oh, I'm going to get to that. I got a whole article about it. It's great. And that, that one comes from the Philadelphia Inquirer, actually. Lewis Moff is the operator of many of these roadhouses. I think pretty much you could say Lewis Moff, he, he probably owned uh, 100% of my area and probably like 60% of Wilkesbury Scranton. I feel like they said something like 36-ish altogether roadhouses that, pro that were probably uh -huh. also connected to this sex work. It's interesting because this article also comes from Marlon, right? He wrote this little thing about him. He says, before you see him showing up in any of these roadhouses or any of this stuff, he talks about where he's born, the, the normal stuff, and that a couple of things happened to him that possibly changed his life. One of them is that he has, unfortunately, his young son passes away from measles, but he, he talks about a fire. And that village... I think they said today is named Atlas. The important part is that his home is one of 10 buildings that's burned down. And what I thought was very interesting, I pick up right away, is that in his article, he says that the locals did not think it was an accident. They thought that the black hand had something to do with it. Do you guys know what the black hand is? No. It was an old monstrous type gang. Yes. So the Black Hand is your extortionist group that the Mafia uses, except a very specific Mafia, because there's more than one. So where I think that Volpe was probably Cosa Nostro, Moff would be somebody else. And this is based off of where he was born. The other thing that's interesting is that Black Hand loves to use arson to get their point across. Two of the other owners of buildings, one of them's definitely Sicilian. His last name is Sicilian. Right. So I'm like, huh, interesting. Lewis is the only, well, I'll say not the only, he is one, it says one of a couple of people who actually had insurance on their house because of, the, you know, for the fire. And I'm just like, um, no, that's not a coincidence. I don't believe that for one, one damn minute. Not at all. He's born in Abruzzo. Abruzzo is where the Camorra Mafia is. And guess who the Kimura uses as their extortionist? The Black Hand. Well. <laughs> I'm like, I'm pretty sure that Louis Moff was fucking mafia. Like, he was just waiting for the, for the inn. Because guess what he does with this insurance money? He builds his first saloon, which is going to be like the beginning of his empire. All these roadhouses and everything else that he's going to wind up doing. So I feel like he's only important to the story because... The locals are correct. The, the problem is that the mafia is so entrenched at this point in this area that their that girl's murder is just never going to get solved. Not technically. They think they know that it was a couple of guys from the roadhouse who did her in and took her up there. So at this point, there's no she's not going to get justice like we like we would expect it because those people are dead. They're long gone. 
I also do want to make a correction because I I just feel bad about saying that people are things when they're not. Marlon Bressi, in his article about Moff, he says, Felix Boticchio, who later rose to notoriety as the Baltimore mob mobster and hitman known as Man of War, which, by the way, also fucking great name for a hitman. Legit. That is 100% not correct. I have in front of me the FBI file for Felix, and he is a really interesting dude, but he was not a hitman, according to the FBI. <laughs> Let me read to you really quickly what he is, though, because it's hysterical. One of the things he's known for is uh, selling pinball machines illegally. <laughs> what? Wait, yeah. how do you sell pinball machines illegally? Like, yeah, they fell off the back of a truck. Yes, duh. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's acquiring pinball machines <laughs> illegal <laughs> illegally. How do you sell them in an illegal manner? That might be a Kiki's quirks for later because there's some kind of weird ass thing that's, that goes on with pinball machines during this time hey. period. Because I think hey. they're seen as like um game gambling. of chance. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, shit. JC, you do know you are aware that it is illegal to sell stolen items, right? <laughs> you, you do know that. I mean, is not everything a stolen item? If we really no. think about it. <laughs> no. Listen, let me tell you about Felix. Hold on. There's two <laughs> things. It's so funny. First of all. I love modus operandi, gambler in the underworld, Philadelphia, South Jersey area, alleged mastermind behind many burglaries and robberies in Camden and Philadelphia area, close association with mafia leaders in Camden area. His criminal history is listed. He was arrested in 1925 for larceny. He was a murder suspect of one police officer, but he was let go on that one. He's holed up. Sex trafficking, basically, escaping and breaking from prison, <laughs> assault and battery, and state liquor violations, because guess what he and his brother owned? A liquor store. <laughs> um. But here, wait, this is my favorite part. Criminal associates, Angelo Bruno, Peter Casella, Pascal Massi, Dominic Polino, Louis Campbell, Dominic Clavetto, and... I swear to you, this is what it literally says. Quote, all of Philadelphia. <laughs> oh, that's a lot of connections. Hamden area. And then lastly, Lucky Luciano. Believe me. Love says all of Philadelphia. Just the whole thing. So this Felix guy, he went far in his uh, career, shall he we say. Did, he did. Yeah, he did. But he was not a hitman. And he was, though, known as... Man of War, that was a nickname he got with gambling because of my favorite gamble, racehorses. Uh, so he was named after the famous racehorse Man of War. Gotcha. Although being being a hitman named Man of War is pretty freaking cool. Too. I mean, he was named after a horse. That's pretty badass. Yeah, a really great horse. Man of War is awesome. Yeah, well, he's considered the greatest racehorse of all time. I got, I got, a, I got a question for you guys. And I'm yeah. curious as to your opinion on it. I have lots of opinions. Okay. This whole business with the girl on the mountain. Do you think that was a mob hit? And the reason I say that is, you know, to the mob, murder is business. Okay. And they take care of it somewhat efficiently. So if this was a mob hit, if she knew something that she shouldn't have known, seen something that she shouldn't have seen, 
wouldn't it have been easier to take her out just like Johnny? Because when you think about it, this whole, and I got to kind of describe the area up here. It's very mountainy. No matter where I look in my town, you're going to see a mountain range. If she was killed somewhere else and she was hauled to Gordon Mountain, you know, that would take a while to do that. Would that have been a mob hit? Or when you look at the crime, just what was found, her remains, does that kind of have the air of absolute hatred and passion written all over it? Because somebody did not want this girl identified. Either that or they hated her so much that they wanted to not just kill her, but obliterate her. So what's your thoughts on that? So with the Damiano hit, it's all about putting it out there. This is what we are going to do to you. Make no bones about it, right? She's the same way, only it's unfortunate that she gets chosen because I think she did see other people murder that guy who went there for services and then complained. And to keep everybody else in line, they used her as an example. It's interesting you say that they tried, see, they tried to cover up the murder, but did they? Because at the same time, all of her teeth are still there. They tried using her teeth for identification, not just her face. Get into that. I forgot, actually, because one of the things was she had a gold tooth and a, there was a, a woman who was very scared that that was her daughter based on the tooth. She tried to identify her, Maria, I can't think of the last name right now. Now, Maria, she contacts the police. She tells them about this tooth. All of a sudden, she says, no, that's not my daughter. Don't worry about it. It's fine. And that's because her 12-year-old son got attacked in the woods by a man with a stiletto. What is the favorite weapon of the black hand? <laughs> They're trained with stiletto. That also went nowhere because then that girl showed up. She wasn't dead at all. So that, that's why they were like, oh, that's not her. Then the cops are like... Th that story is so bizarre to them because they're like, then why did they threaten a 12-year-old? You know, like, <laughs> if that wasn't her, there is nothing that makes any sense to the point where I feel like it was all for show for the rest of the girls. If you open your mouth, this is what's going to happen to you. Just done in an extreme fashion. But it wasn't a hit. It was literally just a couple of dudes who worked at the roadhouse. I don't count that as a hit because if you look at what happens to Moff afterwards, he loses everything. He and his wife get arrested, and even though they can't hold them for anything, everything just falls apart. And he just loses all the roadhouses. He even has to close down the saloon where most of the mafia was hanging out at that point. Like, you know, he went from being a big deal to... And he winds up getting gunned down in the end anyway, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because when I yeah. thought about the case, I was, I was looking at it, and I'm like, okay, I could see it being mafia involved. But I also didn't know if there was a more personal angle to it. Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, the cops also said that they found evidence at the... Uh, oh, at the Sunset Inn? Yes, thank you. That's not like They found evidence <laughs> at the Sunset Inn of two things. One, that there was a club that was found that had some blood on it. And number two, there was blood on a floor upstairs. I did tell you that I, I, did tell you that I found that place, didn't I? In a manner of speaking. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, addendum, it burned down. So, but you found. Yeah, it was a, a real estate listing for a house in New Media, which is, you know, the picture like where I live. If you go two miles north of me, you come to the ghost town of Centralia. That's how yep. close I am to it. And if you go another 10 miles north 
from Centralia. It'll bring you to the town of New Media. And I happened to stumble across a house that in its real estate listing, and if the owners are listening, sorry to break the bad news to you, but maybe they should have disclosed the truth. Right. It said that the house sits on the site of the former Sunset Inn. And it went on with this lemon meringue text about so named for its beautiful sunsets that are still visible off this exquisite property. That's so great. I love that. Yeah, I don't I don't have the heart to knock on the door of these homeowners and say, you know what your house is built on? Um, because back in the 20s where you're living right now, there was a whorehouse. <laughs> and there's one confirmed murder on your property when somebody tried to break in in 1921. They blew the guy's face off with a shotgun. And there may have been another murder here in 1925. I don't have the heart to do that to these people. <laughs> but I want to say the real estate agent lies. When you want to sit back and say that the hotel was named for the glorious sunsets off the back porch. Oh, yeah, I'm sure there were glorious sunsets. It sits on a beautiful open lot. But let's tell the truth about what the sunset in really was. You'll never see a real estate agent put that in the text. Here's the interesting part. When I read more about the sunset quote in, they said it was a, a farmhouse and it yeah, sat on a huge, was. right. It sat on a huge amount of land. It was a quote hotel or an inn in, in just the way that people would come and pay for sex and sleep in those places. It was, you know, like it wasn't an actual hotel, I guess is like, oh, yeah, I didn't have sure. like a ballroom or like a dining right. area like that. No, it was just a farmhouse where you went to have fun. Yes. When the sun, Set. Right, right. And it was a beautiful sunset, apparently, <laughs> according to Remax. I highly doubt anybody was paying attention to the sunsets out the back windows. Depend on what position they were in, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> you did not. I have to be dirty at least one time on the pod. That's my contracts. The boys, you know, they have separate things. They have. JC <laughs> always has to call me old, and Cord has to be sound like an old man at least one what i love talking guys i couldn't imagine having three of you sitting in a bar oh my god this would be amazing but uh, i'll agree with you i guess you could say yes you'd be able to see the beautiful sunset depending <laughs> upon your point your point of view <laughs> we're gonna go to the philadelphia Inquirer, and i'm gonna read directly some of this news article because it is the bomb this is from july 23rd of 1925 okay so shortly after this poor girl's death. It says a ghost adopts camp life. The ghost of an unidentified woman murdered on Broad Mountain near there has become so restless that she or it annoys motorists by extinguishing their lamps, stalling their engines, rendering the sky with groans and committing other forms of sabotage. Possibly the principles of radio broadcasting have been used. If human control of either waves makes it possible to direct airplane and submarine without a pilot or in spite of a pilot, it should be no trouble for a ghost to use the same invisible forces against an automobile and to tap the atmosphere static into shrieks of protest. I thought that was very interesting. Sure. Usually it is sheltered places like a house that are haunted, but they go into, you know, how it could just be this whole area up there is actually possibly haunted. And yes, that is what several other articles, the Mount Carmel item has one about the statewide attention that the, quote, ghost of Broad Mountain has been getting. At one point, there are 2,000 people on the mountain trying to hunt for the ghost. I can't even fathom that many people trying to find a ghost all at once. I was like, holy crap. As far as 
the I want to read that article because that one specifically talks about the cars turning off and lights turning off and and uh, gosh we had that conversation not too long ago with um, Chad Lewis about the one place where that happens and and Cord talked about it in a bonus episode that's available on Patreon about a bridge where your car just cuts out as far as the apparition being seen though that was a hoax. And in the Pottsville Republican on January 20th, 1973, the two men who committed that hoax actually came forward and told everybody how they did it. There was a mannequin involved. There was like sheets and stuff involved. But what they were doing was kind of working in tandem with with the ghost hunters. There'd be like these two guys that would go out there and get everything together. And then they're accomplices would be like the people doing the tour but this was very much about seeing a spirit like seeing the quote ghost walking through the trees or you know and that article is pretty interesting it's it's a huge article so i'm not going to like read the whole thing i just kind of give you the the brief synopsis of it but it is available i'm gonna um actually i can download it and i think i'll put it on uh patreon for free so you guys can read the whole thing because it's really interesting how they did it. Um, And I guess they felt like after all that time that they just wanted to come clean and be like, well, if you saw a ghost, it was us. Now, that does not explain why cars were getting turned off, why headlights were getting turned off, why radios were being messed with. Would be remiss if I didn't give you the, you know, the bad with the good on that one as far as the ghost hunting goes, but. Right. 47 years they waited to tell anybody that they, uh, you know, they were bad boys. <laughs> <laughs> There's a picture of them and everything with with a mannequin head to show what head they used to use to float around. And now, kind of in their defense, that this was also a time when the spiritualists were going nuts. And that was a lot of the people that went up there originally. It wasn't just the average like person being interested in the possible ghost. It was these massive amounts of people and I have feelings about spiritualists, especially since most of them were hoaxing themselves. So to find out that someone was hoaxing them was actually kind of funny. The hunter has become the hunted. Yeah. yeah, That's exactly what it was like. Got him. Like, I can't really feel sorry for all those people that got hoaxed with that particular thing because you guys were making up ectoplasm and just spinning tables around with wires and it was just stupid. Using mirrors and everything else and taking people's money. <laughs> yeah, but see, this is the 1920s. See, uh, money's... See, that's that's my best <laughs> 1920s accent. I don't know. <laughs> wow. I do what I can. That is just <laughs> with, terrible. With the skills provided to me by God, okay? I can tell you, I've been to that spot up there, and it's weird. When I was walking down the road, when I was hiking with some friends, it was like 70 degrees out. I have a sleeveless t-shirt on, and I walked through what felt like 15-degree weather for like a split second. Walked back through it again, and it wasn't there. It's too silent. And when you stand in that area, you can see the main road. And occasionally, you'll see a car go by up and down because it leads right to interstate 81 but even when the cars pass it's too silent you don't hear birds you don't see deer 
You don't see a chipmunk rustling in the underbrush. It's just silent. Too silent for my liking. Interesting. Yeah, that's why I say that that there's other things possibly at play there. And and I I do think it's interesting. Is I, I thought about how she's supposedly, you know, the one camp that believes that she was murdered elsewhere and they just dumped her body and then kind of made an example of her in that fashion. But then the coroner was very much like, I think she was still alive. And that's pretty horrific in itself. We'll have two episodes in a row where I talk about the poisoning of land by extreme negative emotions. So if that's a thing, this could be a place that's very much like that. And that would explain the total silence. Yeah. We are going to take a quick break for our featured music today, which is Mechanical Moth with their song Cathedral. Super excited that we get to even play Mechanical Moth. They are from Germany. Lead singer, amazing voice, and she was kind enough to give us permission to play the song. When we come back, we'll do our Spooky Squad news. to listen to our shilling the whole entire time he knows he knows the drill he's listened to us for a, a while a little while anyway right yeah as a matter of fact i was listening to some this afternoon there you go you get to see it in like real time you get to hear it happening it's it's supposed to be super exciting right um i don't oh, know absolutely yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> okay so if you want to join the squad, head over to patreon.com slash mission spooky. We have tiers at the one, three and five dollar levels. One single buck gets you our undying gratitude, access to our boober reels, access to our archive state episodes with just me and JC. And of course, a shout out on the cast. The three dollar level gets you access to our side missions and exclusive access to Kiki's quirks, which I'm working on. I swear to God. Uh, other side topics saved for just our Patreon folks. And then. You also receive access to the digital stat block card and art card for Cord versus Cryptid. That's going to come back this spring. I, have, I don't have the exact dates, but it's definitely this spring. Talking to the boys. Lastly, you have access to our exclusive state episodes, which now include Cord. And we just did Ohio. And I'm not going to tell you what we're doing next month. Anyone can join our regular Discord community, which we are uh, trying to grow. Yeah, we have channels for cryptids, ghosts, UFOs, 
You have a place to promote yourself, too, if you're an artist or an author, musician, or a fellow podcaster. We also have a and d chat in there and general gaming because we're a bunch of nerds. Giant nerds. I'm not a nerd. Basically, Excuse me while I prep for my next D&D session. Yeah. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter until it self-destructs and on Instagram at Mission Spooky. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, Podchaser, and Good Pods. Just be kind. And if you're as cool as Kevin, you can go follow us on YouTube because that's how we met and interacted. And that's how he got on the show with his experience. So, yeah. Yeah, boy. Yeah. JC? JC? Yeah. Did, did you see Mandalorian, JC? Of course I did. <laughs> I saw I'm, uh, I'm up to date. Are you freaking kidding? I would love to talk about it. Have you guys seen it? No. <laughs> I know no. that. I know Accord has not seen it. I'm completely honored that you guys let me come on today because I don't talk about this with just anybody. And over the years, I just, you know, out of sight, out of mind. So today on this subject matter, you guys had me open up and relive things that I will never forget. I just don't share. but. I'm going to share it with you guys, and I did, and I feel honored for doing so. You've you've now shared it with a lot of other people. Yeah. <laughs> well, now they know a lot of other people. And the cool thing is, yeah, I I'm very appreciative of the fact that you were comfortable enough to come on and share because once we got talking and you then we you know talked about your little experience, it was like, wow, how many times have I heard that particular? Uh, story from other people who are even saying like I didn't I didn't I did not believe but I didn't really have a firm belief either and then something just literally flies across the room with absolutely no explanation whatsoever and scares the living shit out of them and then you know yep that's when you go from the the group from being a believer to the convinced yep and there's there's quite a few few of you out there so I always say I always say email us to mission spooky podcast all one word at gmail.com. You can email us with your uh, with questions or uh, additions because you know Kevin, that's basically what you did too. You were like, hey, I have other information about you know about that story. So that was really cool. And we always take submissions too, as far as you know what what would you like us to talk about? And this whole thing piqued my interest because it actually did still in a way involve a mafia in an area we hadn't talked about yet. So that was really cool. So thank you for coming on because great show. I am humbled and I am honored. Well, you have one more job to do. So. Oh, uh, that's right. I forgot. <laughs> my creative juice is like on the spot. As always, guys, stay spooky and don't die. But if you do, contact us. And if you don't contact Mission Spooky after you're dead, it's okay, because we'll find you. Yeah.